A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Listening to Cocoons of Horror, the podcast that covers your favorite horror, blackbusters, blackbusters. <laughs> that was what the Black Ghostbusters spinoff was going to be. It's just going to be Ernie Hudson. Ernie Hudson and friends. Okay. Uh, today we're covering Steven Spielberg's classic Jaws. This movie is gripping, primal, sweaty. And at times, genuinely funny. So let's dive right in. You have an elevator pitch for this movie? <laughs> yeah, I can only think of how my wife would describe it. <laughs> wow. Sweaty guys chase shark. <laughs> Perfect. Sold. Yeah. Yeah, right? So I'm watching the movie intentionally while she's out because she's notoriously not a fan of sweaty movies. Um, <laughs> this is absolutely the sweatiest yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, this is Cool Hand Luke in a boat. And... Uh, and so I watch it. Like, I'm like an hour in. And then she comes home. She's like, oh, I'll finish watching it with you. And I know what that means is I'll sit on the couch and be on my phone. Because like for her, the horror of this film is what's seen. And it's uh, Robert Shaw. Close up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who famously was drunk for most of the film. Which, Dude. you know, can make you sweat even more. Robert Shaw. Just what an absolute treat. From from the moment he's scratching his nails on the chalkboard. The shark swallow you whole, shaking, tenderizing, down you go. And we gotta do it quick. I don't bring back the tourists. I'll put all your businesses on a paying basis. But it's not gonna be pleasant. I value my neck a lot more than three thousand bucks, chief. I'll find him for three, but I'll catch him and kill him for ten. <laughs> like there's not any even when he's repeating himself and clearly it's because he's drunk did i say this line already chief you know it's just it's so good okay it is so i've got good. this movie i want to talk about shaw but bad hat harry bad hat that guy is quite something he was getting right in his face first of all he was pretty confident because i'm pretty sure he's not wearing a whole lot of clothes in that scene. no and then he just gets right in his face, and he's got one ear under the flap and one ear out, and he's expecting no one to comment on his hat. We know all about you, Chief. You don't go in the water at all, do you? Some bad hat, Harry. 
that was <laughs> bad hat. Where does bad hat? In, in, I mean, in terms of insults, I mean, clearly there's something cultural. I don't want to jump the shark, so to speak, on this, but well, it, it's elegant. It's so simple. <laughs> so right. simple. And he didn't say anything about his man breasts, which he could have <laughs> easily. But I feel like they've been down that road before. That's why there was already tension. And like they had like kind of an agreement. They had an agreement. They said, look, we can do all these conversations you want. But if you just leave my saggy man boobs alone. Spielberg was like, I need a man with man boobs for this part. And then Roy Schreider was like, uh, you know what? I'm not going to say anything about his man boobs. Can I just can I can I like comment on his hair? Spielberg was like, no, we'll give him a hat. Well, Spielberg, the genius director that he is, like, I'm setting Roy up. I'm going to let him improvise this scene, and I'm giving him, I'm, I'm serving it up on a tee. But Roy, you know, they actually always call him Coy Roy because he's always like, he doesn't want to go that far. Like, he won't, like, Roy Scheider is notoriously known in the biz for, quote, not going there, end quote. And so this is another one of those circumstances. So he just threw out bad hat. And the weirdest thing was is that the other guy's reaction, how, like, upset he got, he actually handpicked that hat from home so so he actually was super excited to get this role that he was had, not in costume he brought that right so he you know he's he's you know he's been wrestling with body image issues his whole life so he's kind of prepped he's like i know what's coming and when he goes off on the hat and he's like this is this is anything but a bad hat this is good hat i know this is good hat and they cut it right away because my I, wife loves this hat my wife cannot climax without this hat. <laughs> that scene ends so abruptly because uh, Bad Hat Harry took a full-on swing. <laughs> yeah, and then they're like, we want to keep this PG. You're going to have to do less F-bombs, Roy. He's like, but the hat! I'm just triggered by this hat. Now, you won't hear this on the internet or in any interview with any of the, the production, but I will tell you this. The man breast actor got offended, threw away the hat. Richard Drivers got the hat out of the trash and wore it around New York City for the next three years. That's right. And that's why him and Roy Scheider never spoke after Jaws. <laughs> Another fun fact is um, Richard Dreyfus was so taken by the dailies that he actually helped Steven Spielberg uh, design uh, the aliens from Close Encounters based on that guy. <laughs> <laughs> the and, argument was the hat because <laughs> he's like i don't want him to have hats <laughs> they almost in fact there was even a rewrite at one point they were talking about like do we want to make the movie just called hat and <laughs> and it's that guy just terrorizing the beaches <laughs> oh you think you've seen bad hats chief uh it's, i i guess people would probably have guessed that we're covering jaws today well at this point yeah i mean it's i think it's a given because <laughs> i mean at this point if you're like well, otherwise known as hat <laughs> right. what people right now are like i mean i think they've made the connection right they're like dreyfus scheider was, was scheider in stakeout no no that was estevez oh okay <laughs> they start going through dreyfus's filmography like was he in Crippendorf's tribe nope no nope. that was jenna elton Welcome to Hats in Movie History. <laughs> Steve and Anthony. <laughs> Hats and a little bit of Dreyfus. Next week we'll be talking about the Mask of Zorro. <laughs> <laughs> so when I first texted you and said which you know which film should we do first, I gave you like four options, and you said your gut tells you Jaws. Yeah. 
So why is that? Because I can think of a lot of reasons why Jaws works for us in particular. Right. Well, fun fact, this is only the second time I've ever seen Jaws all the way through. Me too. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. See, I feel like Jaws was always like on, like TBS. And so I would walk into it at certain points to the point where I would like, I get it. I think I, I, I think I get it. Like if anybody asked if I'd seen Jaws, I'm like, I had to have, right? Because, you know, I've seen the beach try to get closed, but then not get closed. I've seen plenty of shark things. But then I got to the point where I started mashing up Jaws 2 because if, if ever Jaws was on TV, it was part of like a Jaws marathon. Mm, mm-hmm. So if Chances I would like to tune you, in throughout yeah, you're the... Gonna, right. And if I see Scheider, I'm like, well, this is... Is this one? Is this two? To the point where even I thought that the Jaws 2 poster where he's... The, uh, the shark is coming after the girl uh, water skiing. I thought that was the original Jaws poster for a time. Now, my experience is different in that I consciously, like, I strategically avoided Jaws. Hmm. Because I've never been into horror flicks until very right. recently. And on top of that, I think that the first time I was ever aware of Jaws as a concept was my oldest sister complaining that my dad had been promising her to teach her how to swim. Mm-hmm. We were at like this camp at Catalina Island and he, she was complaining, but my dad had just seen jaws. And so he refused to go in the water. Wow. So that's, yeah. So that amazing. What this film did is like, there's some things where people are like, Ooh, this movie makes me scared to stay at a hotel or this movie makes me scared to go in elevators. This is like, I'm scared of the majority of the earth. I'm scared of three fourths of the earth's surface. Exactly. That's <laughs> Spielberg just weaponized Earth. So the other sort of cultural touchstone that I have to this film, it's one of the very few iconic songs that you can play on the Mm -hmm. piano if you know nothing about the piano. Right, right. So we had like a piano in my house, and I I couldn't play piano as a kid. So, you know, so Jaws, it was always Jaws. Well, what and the thing is, is we, without having ever seen it, that's one amazing thing about music, right, is that we've all seen Jaws through that song more than we've seen probably the film right i mean like it became something you would parody in cartoons or other films um it was it, it, an iconic moment in film history really which is amazing because the rest of the music in this film and i'm gonna tell you right now the music in this movie outside of that theme <laughs> is hot hot garbage i mean every like i'm am i supposed is this supposed to be an upbeat nature moment when they're like chasing the shark i'm like this is supposed to be tense but it's just like there's like little whistles and and fun violins going up I'm like, wait there's there's imminent danger like that's what i'm supposed to be feeling because it's in the beginning of the movie they nail it like one thing that spielberg does that's incredible is that after the first attack and they're in the water he does a great job of cutting all sound except for skin and water. They can, they can play out here on the beach. All right, Because on the beach, you can hear people talking, you can hear some music playing in the background, but then as soon as they cut to the water, it's just silent with just the, the sound of like hands paddling in the water, of a little raft like yeah. kind of splashing up and down. And that is, and it is an incredible moment of tension. And then when it goes back to the beach, you feel comfortable. Like what they do is every time you go to the water, you get tense. Every time mm-hmm. you go out into the land, it's more upbeat. It's this 
incredible way that that he creates tension without any shark but just the threat well of shark that's is so right good and just doing a little bit of research on this the reason why that was is that they could not get the mechanical shark to work in salt water <laughs> so spielberg <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> they, they designed a remote controlled shark in a pool or something Right. And then when they shipped it out to uh, the East Coast, put it in salt water, it just stopped working. So Spielberg oh was like, God. I'm going to have to figure out how to represent this shark without a shark. So if they had better mechanics, Steven Spielberg's the worst director. <laughs> That's exactly right. Because so much of what makes this film work is the absence of the thing that you're horrified of, right? Exactly, right? And I think that's, I think that, in my opinion, that's the case in most horror films. I heard an interview with him. What he said was, when I couldn't get the shark to work, I thought, what would Hitchcock do? And mm. so he totally went to Hitchcock and he thought, well, the thing that you don't see scares you more than the thing that you do see. And because this film was such a success, I think that you see that through all kinds of films, including Tarantino, and you could just right. name a, a dozen of films that, that use this technique. Yeah, I mean, that's just crazy to think that if, if somebody had been able to perfect gears that can, that don't corrode in salt water, there would be no Schindler's List. Because <laughs> <laughs> then he's just another hack, Corman-type director. Just shark every time you turn around. I've got this movie broken up into four acts, so try this on for size. Okay, act one, introducing the shark. Interesting that they introduce the shark by introducing two morons first. Yeah, which is good, because then you're like, hmm, like what would, what would chum, <laughs> human chum? Chrissy and Cassidy are two of the stupidest people. <laughs> I've ever seen on film. Like, they just met, right? They, like, didn't they just meet? They were looking at each other across a campfire. She gets naked, and he says, What's your name again? Chrissy. Where are we going? Swimming. Slow down. I'm not drunk. Slow down. He can't even undress himself. And then there's a naked woman life. swimming in the ocean, and for some reason he just lays on the beach and looks at the stars. Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. Uh, all right, so act one, introducing the shark. Act two, uh, proving that it's a, actually a great white. That, that's a big part of the movie, just proving that right. there's actually a monster. Act three is my favorite, and that is introducing the team. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to Act 3, I'm totally hooked. No pun intended. Uh, act 4 is Man versus Beast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm totally hooked at Act 3. As soon as they go into Robert Shaw's, I don't know, shark shed or whatever that is. <laughs> and he's got his right. still of whatever, you know, 150 proof, whatever it is. <laughs> exactly. That you know is he was real. I'm totally in. I like. I I love that. There's this sort of class discussion going on. I love that Roy's character is like he's sort of taking a back seat because you know he's the town sheriff, but totally aquaphobic, afraid of drowning, and now we just have this Robert Shaw masterpiece. Right. He's yeah. just amazing in this film. Yeah, it's like there's this. Like a symphony going, and then a marching band came in, 
and said, you're just going to have to deal with it, chief. <laughs> and so the symphony starts to like kind of pick up the tempo of the marching band. <laughs> uh, so I kind of laughed through the first two acts. I mean, there's a really a lot of funny stuff that's going on. Some in, unintentional. Uh, sure. Do you think that the mayor is believable? Might be a little over the top. I think he becomes a little more believable when he's faced with like the reality of it, right? I actually thought the moment where it should have been a slam dunk that he should just sign off to get Quint and mm-hmm. shut everything down, but he's still like he's still paused. So I think that that added a little bit of almost retrofitted credibility to his character from before because instead of him just switching, like okay, I finally made like what you would see a lot of times in films would be like, all right, I've 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 seen it firsthand. Okay, I get it. But this was a little bit different. Like there was still like a but. I don't know. Can can I can I have it both ways? To me, that's a key shift in the film because it, up until that point, I think he's kind of a caricature of a mayor. Like this, he could be right. like a slapstick mayor up until this point, and then all of a sudden, you're in a different movie because that character becomes fully realized as a human. Like he's like my family was on that beach, right? And as soon as he's fully realized as a human, you never see him again. Yeah, that's interesting. Then you have sort of an unlikely trio of heroes, I suppose. Okay, Steve, who is this film for? Um, I think it's for the masses. It's a PG movie, right? It is a PG movie. I, it's pretty graphic. I mean, it the very um, first scene, nudity and blood. First, nudity, nudity and blood, and it's like, and it's, and the thing is, is, is the blood is one thing, but it's the the violence in which she's being shaken, and then we see like severed arms, we see severed legs. Oh, absolutely. It's accessible to everyone. And they let you know before, you know, like the the trailers in 1975 were see Jaws before you go swimming. So they were like, they were totally building up the fear part of it. And in the modern world, one of the ways that you do that is that you make it rated R. Mm -hmm. No one will go to see a scary PG movie. That's just not how the world works. No. So, yeah, first major blockbuster in cinematic history, partly because of how they released it, um, partly because, like, there wasn't such a thing as sort of a a major summer release before this movie. But the fact that they make it PG means that you you can take the whole family, right? Whether you should or not is another another, uh, question altogether, but... Well, yeah, my dad is a great example. My dad refusing to teach my sister to swim in the ocean because this movie... So, all right. So, key question: Is this movie better than a Ron Howard flick? Yeah, I, I give it a Ron Howard plus four. Oh, my, that's my gosh! Now, in our nonsensical rating system, that's pretty high, right? I think so. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the point. A Ron yeah. Howard plus four means nothing. It, it, <laughs> it's it's all about how you feel afterwards. It sort of reflects how you feel. Right after watching this movie. Well, and also, I think there's something to be said for it. This is a film that, um, even though I've only seen it all the way through twice, I feel like I've seen it more just because of its its presence in culture and pop oh, it's culture. Iconic. Uh, the amount of times I've seen little clips of it, whether it was, you know, like I said, during a marathon or who knows what. This movie has been part of our life, our entire life, one way or another. Um, yeah, this is part of Americana that we grew up with. Right. And probably... Sort of the epitome of a scary movie. Yeah. So if I take a Ron... Probably this and The Exorcist. Right. And if I take a variety of Ron Howard films and say, how do they hold up? There's a few that I'm like, I still enjoy now. But like, 
to watch it last night and to actually still feel tension because you're so into everything that's going on you forgive the fact that it's a mechanical shark because now you're like well i guess i'm afraid of a mechanical shark now let's keep going yes i think if if that shark had showed up in the first two acts it would have been totally comical but because i'm totally immersed with these three characters on this boat i'm already in the movie i'm totally forgiving any effects right but that brings me to my next question. That is, does this movie hold up? Yeah. So there's two ways to answer that question, right? So I say yes, you know, despite the hinges, despite all that, everything else works. But then the the question of like, there's another way to answer that, which is like, introduce this movie to your son now with no, you know, with no cultural yeah. context. What is his thought? Does he think this movie's cheesy? I mean, because it is PG, there are moments that are very PG. Like they're the three guys, the team on the boat singing, you know, singing very, you know, show tuny type type melodies. Sailor songs. Yeah. And Richard Dreyfus is 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 very easily amused at his own jokes, you know, and and so that moment it feels a little bit authentic, but a whole lot more pg authentic right so like if this movie is r that back and forth is way more raw it's way more body um and probably a little more believable like but it, it does what it needs to do in, in terms of disarming you from the tension because that's the point spielberg does do a good job of at least disarming you so that when those barrels pop back up you're taken back in and it's an it, and that's an abrupt jolt that's important so i think it holds up for what it's trying to do i mean it's not going to hold up effects wise and I don't think it's going to hold up in terms of like some of the dialogue that we've grown accustomed to. But overall, I think it's still an effective horror film, uh, especially a, a PG horror film. Well, I was wondering watching this, like, could this be the best PG film ever? Like that, that thought did cross my mind. So I think it absolutely holds up. I think that the question is, would this movie be better if you went in with George Lucas's effects team right. and CGI'd this thing? And I tend to think not. Yeah, a shark is hard anyway because, like, they're made for the water. So anytime they get the shark out of the water, it's never going to be – it's not it, – it, a shark isn't going to – is not made for that, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, like, it can leap up and grab something. And, like, that scene where it gets the kid – and, by the way, I mean, just kill a kid right out the gate, right? <laughs> um, well, no one's talking about the dog either. The dog is just gone. Yeah. Yeah. The dog is like an appetizer. When that shark just turns – you know, you don't really get the full shape of the shark. You just know that something massive just took that kid out. And that's a pretty graphic. I mean, like, in terms of PG, even though we don't see, like, like bone get snapped, we're watching a child be consumed by a shark. That's what they would call back when they would say, like, what is a movie rated for? It would say, like, strong language. And then there would yeah. be this thing called adult content. That's that's what adult content was. That like is, that's, that is that's the epitome adult of adult content. Yeah, and I love the idea that that's just like, that's, those are two words. Like, how do we describe something that's super like gross and icky? Well, that's adult content. Really? All right, next question. Uh, is there one tweak that you would make to this film that you think that would enhance it? That music, baby. That music. <laughs> when they leave port and it's just like a little bit boop, boop, boop. You know that I mean, like all right, I guess. But then when they're like chasing the shark, it, like it comes right back up again, and I'm like, it just, it just took me right out of the moment. I don't think I agree with you on this. Well, you're wrong, but that's fine. It's a little bit like Indiana Jonesy. 
at times. It's, but see, it doesn't feel. It feels more like a nod to nature film. Like and maybe that's what it's supposed to be. But it feels like like maybe like a Jacques Cousteau type influence. Yeah, whether, you know, maybe so. And, maybe so. But it just feels. It doesn't feel organic. I thoroughly enjoy it. I all right. So I, here's my one twink. My one tweak is I didn't like the mayor. One twink, one twink is very different than tweak. <laughs> here's, here's I lead him in on a leash. Yeah, here's my one twink. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't have any money, sir. But here's my one twink. Um. So my one. <laughs> The, the sequel to Indecent Proposal that nobody wanted. I give you one night with my twink. You know what? Venmo is fine. Jeez. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I think that we know that this is going to be for mature audiences only. That's a lot of adult content. <laughs> Here I thought we were covering a PG movie. Maybe that's the name of the podcast, Adult Content. Uh, my one tweak is that I didn't like the mayor. I never liked the mayor. And I think like you that didn't like him as a character. You didn't like the way he was portrayed. Portrayed, which the same guy was in The Graduate. I really liked him in The Graduate, but for some reason, mm. I didn't like him in this. He um, plays Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Very amazing convincing. range on this guy. Incredible. Just couldn't nail the mayor. <laughs> So I would recast the mayor, and my choice for recasting would be Jason Robard. Ah, because he's always convincing. I think that he's the kind of guy that would be able to convince this big city police chief that he's got, it's like my way or the highway. I don't think that a cartoon character is going to convince Roy Scheider that he shouldn't clear the beaches. That's fair. Yeah, and and again, I think that mayor becomes sort of iconic too. Where you look back, like the mayor is is a mechanical shark in some ways. I'd forgive it. All right, one trope, cliche, or device that worked for you. I actually, I I didn't know if I was going to be on board with it. Uh, the um, the fact that Roy Scheider doesn't get in the water already, like he's already seen Jaws. <laughs> but it did kind of work for me, right? Because I, I, I like that they didn't overdo it, right? I mean, it was, it's, because uh, like, it, it, it towed a fine line between we either could just not have this be part of his character, because it doesn't necessarily have to be, or we overdo it to the point where, like, he's just, like, won't even dip his toe in the tub or something, right? So, like, I feel like I did a pretty good job of, like, he's already nervous about it. Mm-hmm. He's on an island already. So he's kind of already dealing with it. Yeah. And then... And then to get him on the boat is a big deal. But that whole scene, like, I, I believed it enough so that as that boat is capsizing so slowly, like, that's an amazing scene, too, right? Because he's just getting closer and closer to the water. And it's like, it's twofold. One, he already doesn't want to be in the water, shark or no shark. And then you add it to it. It's like, well, this is why I don't want to be in the water. <laughs> There's a shark over there. <laughs> and <laughs> There's a wonderful scene where Richard Dreyfus brings a couple bottles of wine to his house. Mm-hmm. And at this point, you know, this is a big tough guy, right? He's the chief of police. And his wife is trying to say, hey, you know, he's he's actually, there's a word for it. But they stop short of saying aquaphobic. Right. And he just, what is it called again? And he just like says drowning. I'm afraid of drowning. Right. You know, whatever. Yeah. But it, it was just like one word, drowning. It's like he shrugs it off 
They don't even say the word, but it tells you what you need to know about that guy. Because even though he is afraid of drowning, he doesn't want to be known for that. Right. Yeah, he lives on an island now. He doesn't want to be known that he's afraid of drowning. Great line too when they when he says uh, he says it's odd for a guy who's afraid of the water to live on an island. It's like well, it's only an island if you're not looking at it from land. Right. And uh, now for me, now I don't know if this is a trope or if this or if Jaws actually created the trope, but it, it's pretty common in a movie like this that you'll get a big city cop who's relocated to a small town because you know he wants a quieter life. I mean, Stranger Things very intentionally models Hopper after Roy Scheider's character. Right. Um, Which is kind of the opposite of, of Perfect Strangers, right? Because Balky's coming from, like, a smaller, like, you know, more, uh, you know, country life, and then he comes to the big city. So he does, yeah, right, right. So he's like a country mouse who's relocated right. to be with his city mouse cousin, Cousin Larry. Yeah, so this, this Jaws is essentially Cousin Larry is coming to protect all the Balkies of Meepos from a shark. Right, and the dance of joy is a metaphor, I think. Well, the dance of joy is Richard Dreyfus and Roy Scheider when they're paddling back. That is the uh, the uh, aquatic dance of joy. You don't see what's going on under the water, but it looks exactly <laughs> like Balky Bartokomos's <laughs> dance of joy. Yeah. yeah, they're not they're not paddling; they're dancing. <laughs> so I like that. I like I think big city cop in small town. Uh, this really worked for me. Because I felt like normally that's done to show that this cop is the presence in the town and everyone has to defer to him. But in reality, the fact that he grew up in the city and not on this little island puts him in a one-down position. When they told and they said it explicitly, how long do I have to be here to be an islander? It's like, honey, you're never going to be an islander. You weren't born here. That's right. Yeah, you're always going to be in that one-down position. Yeah. So I love that. The other thing that I thought was... Interesting about this movie is that Spielberg brought in a comedy writer named Carl Gottlieb to help him write the script or rewrite the script. And I think for all of like the action films and horror films that incorporate comedy, they probably have Spielberg to thank for this. Like it's not like Hitchcock's films brought in a comedy writer. So they rewrote the script. They brought in Carl Gottlieb to do that. And so those first two acts have that kind of levity. But even on the boat, there's a lot of comedy on the boat, too. Right. And Quint is um, really, he can be super serious and he can be the ominous figure, but he can also be the, the comic relief at times. Well, he gets ominous. I mean, he, he becomes a sort of heroic figure when he talks about his military service, right? So he's look at this truck size, Chief. <laughs> Black and lifeless, kind of like dolls' eyes. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, eleven hundred men went in the war. Three hundred sixteen men come out. The sharks took the rest. June the 29th. Yeah, I encourage everybody who's listening to just take some time throughout the day to do that. It's sort of like a meditative type thing. Even when he gets upset, it's still it's it's good. I think it's good for the throat muscles, and it's just it's good for your, your chi. I put myself to sleep just mimicking that voice. Oh my wee Spanish lady! It's a little bit Popeye, isn't it? Yeah. Oh no, it's. <laughs> I'll catch that shot for you, chief. Just jumping in here for a quick sidebar. 
You should know that my friend Steve lives with about half a dozen dogs, give or take. Changes almost weekly. Anyway, you'll hear a jingling in what follows. So, it can't be helped. You'll hear dog noises in almost every episode. But before we get to that, a word from our sponsors. And now back to our discussion of Jaws. Have you seen any of the sequels? No, I've, I've seen zero. I've seen... I, I don't think I've seen all of two. Um, I've heard that two is pretty hokey, but it gets good toward the end. Well, two, two Roy Scheider and the shark um, are fighting, and then they both get knocked out, and, would, and whichever one gets out of the water first uh, becomes the heavyweight champion of the world. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and James Brown is lowered in by a... It's- a hook to sing pontoon boat (laughs) to sing for the event to sing to sing the song waiting in america it's great um i uh i've seen three three is jaws 3d and that takes place at a uh like a a water park jaws 3d i think was the first movie i ever heard that could be in 3d yeah so when you watch it now when it's not in 3d it's just a lot of a lot of uh, the actors like handing you something and um, which would be a lot more effective in 3d. Uh, but when it's not, it's just like, all right, it's a pencil, bro. I get it. Four is amazing. So four, because the reason why four was, I watched four was because entertainment tonight really pushed it. It was like during that time when Michael Caine was in everything. And, uh, and it's an amazing plot, right? Like jaws Four: the revenge this time it's personal for the shark. So, so the shark, it's like, a, it's like a descendant of the original Jaws is coming to get Roy Scheider's wife, who is now like in the Bahamas or something. I know Mario Van Peebles is in it. In fact, that's, I might go and rewatch The Revenge. <laughs> I'm starting to get dogs losing it over here. So. Okay, one more question. Okay. When did pruned fingers cease to be a problem in your life? Well, I don't get in the water all that much. Um, and I, it's fascinating when I found out why your fingers prune, it sort of changed my whole perspective on things. I remember being chastised just like that little boy for having pruned fingers. It's an evolutionary thing that your body does when it's in the water to increase the ability to grip. You're kidding me. This is my, this is my understanding. So you're becoming more amphibious? Like a merman, yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. The real concern is that if you're in there too long, the pruned fingers will become scales. No, if you're in there too long, you will become Aquaman. Yeah. So that's the thing. is there, it, it, Our parents were afraid of our potential for uh, superhuman powers. They were trying to keep us out of the ocean because they were worried they were going to lose us to the yep. underwater culture of Aquaman. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And that's what Jaws, why Jaws was important and why they really made a big deal to make it a PG. Because they're like, how do we get people out of the water without telling them that they're going to turn into Aquaman? Dude, this whole thing is, it's, it, it's a carryover from the Nixon administration. All right, I think we're done. <laughs> as soon as we invoke Nixon. I told you not to get political, Steve. <laughs> awesome. You might be interested to know that Cocoons of Horror has a cousin podcast 
called Perfect Stranger Things, where Steve and I rewatch Stranger Things episode by episode. In fact, most of the movies that we're covering for Cocoons of Horror have a direct relationship with Stranger Things. Because Cocoons of Horror is linked to Stranger Things, we will be covering classic horror like Jaws and Poltergeist, but we'll also be covering things like Stand By Me, Sixteen Candles, E.T. You can look forward to our coverage of those films in upcoming podcasts. Here it is an excerpt of Perfect Stranger Things. Steve, if you hear White Rabbit on the radio, you gotta put your head on a swivel, man. Yeah, to me, that is a modern-day air raid siren. Yeah, radio stations are not allowed to play that song. <laughs> not in Hawkins, Indiana. I'm just assuming that Benny has a drug-riddled past, and he's not sure whether or not he's having an acid flashback. Right. He hears the song. He's like, all right, this child's not real. Let's have some fries. <laughs> I've never seen anyone eat fries the way that Elle eats those fries. When she holds it like it's uh, like a, a very large apple. I want to try that. I'm glad you mentioned it because that immediately when I'm like, is that going to change my whole fry experience? Because like you eat them one at a time because it just seems logical. But like I'm thinking, man, you grab a handful and just eat it like an apple. And it's like that mouth feels so different. Well, the other thing about it is that eating fries hot is a much different experience than eating fries cold. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, by the time you're getting to the end, you're already regretting it. Uh, not just that you wouldn't regret it the other way, but I just think it would. <laughs> it, let's just put it this way. If you're going to eat fries in the first place, you've already made a life decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we try to like, oh, well, if we eat it like this, if I eat it as if it's delicate, maybe I won't look like the pig that I really am. There's no one that's listening to this podcast that has ever not finished a helping of fries. Right. You eat every fry. You even eat the gross fries at the yeah, bottom of yeah, the Yeah, you bag. get down to the bottom, you eat those little witch fingernails. You're just like, yeah, dude, whatever. Punch them. <laughs> so in this storyline, we learn that Elle has superpowers, right? Right. I think that there's something about Millie Bobby Brown that just sells this for me. I feel like, I mean, we should probably talk about my history with child actors and my general distaste for child actors. Mm -hmm. Children in general, but yeah. <laughs> So, child, child actors who eventually become hor horrible adults is just a perfect metaphor for why you should not love your children the more I, information they get the worse adults they become i'm not gonna touch that one there's just something about the way that she's playing this that just is fantastic the way that she's eating the fries you know i've never seen someone eat fries that way but totally sells the desperation of her situation and then the way that she turns that fan off as if there's just it's it's nothing. She's done this a thousand times. Yeah. It really creates this upside down mentality where up is down and down is up and something that's freakish to us is normal to her and something that's normal to us is like a, an act of desperation for her. Right. Um and just the fact that she looks like a normal kid but her head shaved. Um, right. You know, just that little thing to kind of indicate, like, there's something seriously wrong here. What I like about this is that your instinct is to be, you know, you're like, hey, there's a there's a child that's running in hospital gown. There's something I feel for, right? Like you're mm -hmm. every, you know, even if you're not a parent, there's like a parental 
instinct. But then she stops a fan and she just straight up murders some people. Now those people were dangerous, it it appears. <laughs> but but she didn't send them across the rooms and then get them to sort of be disoriented. No, it's mm-hmm. they were done. And it so, took us a full season of Game of Thrones to allow Arya to actually kill someone. Right. Elle kills someone season one, episode one. Right. And so what that does is it changes your perspective on her, right? Does she know she's killing? And if she does, she's okay with it. If she doesn't know she's killing, oh, that's even more dangerous <laughs> because she exactly. could just kill again in a way that's instinctual, right? Like that's mm-hmm. her her defense mechanism. So yeah. that becomes so, – so now you have a whole new set of problems, right, which is how do you help somebody who may not even realize you're trying to help them and may not have the ability to not kill you? You know, those things come into play. And so it's – yeah. again, I don't think enough can be said for how – quickly this show did so much you didn't wait the episode or two to get a glimpse of a creature yeah or yeah. i mean and now you've got you don't just have one danger <laughs> you know there's there's multiple levels of now they may all coalesce as we find out you know while we watch the, the show but but at this moment there's just a smattering of danger in hawkins this first episode is really ambitious it's like four different shows wrapped into one you know it's it's very much a group of young kids dealing with adult problems like the goonies or whatever stand by me but it's also a story about parenting in the face of loss it's also kind of a cop movie you know sort mm-hmm. of a typical big cop in a little town movie and all of that you know i haven't even talked about any of the science fiction elements of this yet Right. Um, so it's super ambitious, and I think that each one of these elements is really well established in this first episode. There's so many other dynamics that you can almost forget at times that there's a paranormal danger. Yeah. And, and on top of that, you've got yeah. this nostalgia thing happening in the same way sort of we experienced the Wonder Years you know, as teenagers, our parents were experiencing the Wonder Years in a much different way, on a much right. different level. And so it's also doing that work at the same time. So I, just a really impressive first episode. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw it. I liked the font. The font um, <laughs> the font is really important because the font brings me back to almost every Stephen King novel. Yeah, and consciously modeled after that. I mean, there's so much Stephen King in this as well, but yeah. just the attention to details. You know, the the opening music is sort of reminiscent of Halloween. Yeah, I mean, we've got um, we've got monsters immediately, right? We've got science fiction. Pretty pretty quickly. Well, it starts out with a guy being killed aliens style, right? Right. You know, scene one, we know that there's a monster on the loose, and he's going to eat some fools, right? Right. So you got that. I think that in addition to sort of revealing the monster right off, you don't see the monster kind of like Jaws. Right. But instead of those yellow floating barrels with Jaws or the music, electricity is used in place of the monster. Right. The presence is felt like you see that like in ghost movies, right? Like where it gets cold, you know, also yeah. someone can see their breath and oh, something just shifted, you know, 
Yeah, that I mean, actually that's... was just something that Bruce Willis does in every movie. <laughs> I don't know, it's just some weird, some weird people... aura that he has, and they <laughs> so they just wrote that into the movie. Some actors and actresses can cry on cue. <laughs> he can make his breath seem very warm. <laughs> <laughs> so wherever you search for podcasts, search for Perfect Stranger Things. If you've listened this far, you might be interested to know a little bit more about Steve and I. Steve is a stand-up comic based in the North Bay Area. That's where we grew up, just north of San Francisco. I now live in Ohio. I'm a professor. I write books about history, religion, and pop culture. You can have a look at the kinds of books that I write at ladonbooks.com. That's my last name, L-E-D-O-N-N-E-books.com. You can follow Steve on Instagram at OzFest. That's at A-U-S-F-E-S-T, OzFest. He'll usually post there his upcoming gig, so you can see him on stage if you're ever in the North Bay. And of course, follow him on Instagram. That would actually help his visibility. But the best thing that you can do to help us out as we are a new podcast is to write a positive review on Apple iTunes. It really is the best way to increase our visibility. Finally, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us with comments or questions at cocoonsofhorror at gmail.com. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works, and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.